Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. India's reintegration into the world economy in the past 15 years is transforming virtually all aspects of society in the world's biggest democracy. Rapid growth, changes in inequality, new forms of political participation, the rise of new industries, changing attitudes about modernity and tradition, significant poverty reduction, all characterize the new India. Alongside uh, continued stagnation and lack of reform in some sectors and other indicators of what some of us might consider backwardness. So in that sense, India is a, a messy place, and it could hardly be otherwise. These changes are so vast uh, that in a society as complex uh, as that of India's, we need a reliable guide to understand uh, what is surely one of the great dramas of our time. That's why I'm pleased to be able to uh, host uh, Arvind Panagaria today uh, for a discussion of his new book, India, the Emerging Giant, which has become the reference work on Indian policy and policy change and reform in the independence period. In it, uh, Arvind deals with the whole range of the most important policy issues telling the story of what has happened in India since independence. He looks at the big picture, trade and macro uh, reforms, and looks at more specific issues, uh, such as the need to, for reform in water delivery or in the civil service. He also describes uh, successes, such as the country's telecom uh, revolution. From those experiences and uh, from others around the world, he proposes innovative policies uh, is precisely in the areas where government has failed the poor, uh, education, health care, and so on. Now, since the moment of independence, India has, has captured the imagination of experts in the field of what has become development uh, economics for various reasons that has been the case. And for various reasons, India has had a disproportionate impact on the thinking of development economists uh, around the world. And indeed, Indian economists have been uh, among the, the leaders in the study of poverty uh, in underdeveloped countries generally. Arvind uh, Panagaria has become a leading thinker on the Indian economy, on what needs to be done there in terms of reform. And were he to uh, successfully influence the course of policies, especially in the areas where he has uh, some cutting-edge uh, ideas, I have no doubt that the influence uh, of those policy changes would be tremendous all around the world. So I think it's best to hear exactly from him what the story of India has been and to bring us up to date on what's going on there today and uh, hear his, his uh, specific uh, proposals. So let me introduce him. Arvind uh, Panagaria is a professor of economics and uh, the Jagdish Bhagwati Professor of Indian Political Economy at Columbia University. He, has also, he is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. In the past, he has been the chief economist at the Asian Development Bank and a professor of economics at the University of Maryland at College Park. He's also worked for the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the World Trade Organization, and so on. He has edited or written 10 books. He is the editor of India Policy uh, Reform, which is a, a journal. And he writes a monthly column in the Economic Times, which is India's top financial newspaper. 
please help me welcome back to the Cato Institute, Arvind Panagaria. Thank you, Ian. Um, I, I need to thank you, actually, for on, on many counts. Uh, first, for inviting me here. Second, for a very generous introduction. Third, for a wonderful summary of the book. I probably don't need to now speak, actually. It was so <laughs> well done. Uh, and fourth, this, and this is something you might not realize, actually, um, you have published a paper of mine some years ago, which really was, was a precursor. This is at the Cato Institute, and which was a precursor to this book. Uh, in, in some ways, at least, a substantial part of the book actually grows out of, out of that, that particular paper. Uh, let me begin by stating first that you know, India's success story is a bit of a sudden one, more, uh, 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 and, and, and obviously a very recent one. Uh, even back you know, 15 to 20 years ago, um, uh, we, we used to joke that, uh, that the economists who work on India uh, are generally divided into two categories, those who are pessimists and those who are optimists. The pessimist says that, gee, things are so wrong with India, I can't imagine them any worse. And, and the optimist says that, but I can. Um, now, that has really changed, actually. Today, uh, uh, the, the headline figure for uh, India's economic growth uh, uh, rate, rate of economic growth, uh, is, is about um, 8 to 9%. Uh, if you take last five years, uh, uh, average rate of growth is 8.8%, uh, which you know, can, we can round off to 9 um, and this is the growth rate actually in real rupees. Um, alongside what has also happened in the last five years is that the rupee has been appreciating in terms of the dollar at the rate of about 6% a year. Uh, and if you factor that in, uh, it, in real dollars, the Indian economy has been growing about 15% a year. So that's that's very remarkable rate of growth uh, to just give you an idea of what it means. Um, if, if that process can be sustained, if that kind of growth can be sustained for 20 years, I'm not suggesting that this will happen. I really don't believe in these very long-term uh, uh, predictions. If we can see the next five to 10 years, that's good enough. Uh, but if, if that were to actually sustain for a period of 20 years, uh, India's uh, economy goes from something like 1.2 trillion currently to 18 trillion uh, compared to the current size of the U.S. economy, which is about roughly 15 trillion. So that's, that's all in dollars. Um, so it, it really is a very rapid rate of growth. Now, one of the things uh, um, uh, that, that uh, 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 sometimes that's one of the debates within India, at least, is that, well, is this real or not? And, you know, because in a lot of India's economic growth is concentrated in the services as opposed to manufacturing, and, and which you know, include lots of informal sector services as well. Uh, uh, and, and so that naturally raises some doubts that whether you know, this, is, this is for real or not. Uh, and, and I want to give, therefore, a few indicators where, which you know, we can measure with fair degree of precision uh, to, to make the point that this, this at least to me, is uh, something quite real. And, and that will also feed into the next argument I want to make which, uh, on, on why I think this growth, at least you know, in, in, in the short to intermediate run, so you know, next five to ten years for sure, is going to sustain. Uh, let me start with trade side first. For, again, you know, international trade is something we can measure with great degree of precision. And trade in India has grown very rapidly. Uh, one simple indicator is that trade to GDP ratio uh, uh, has more than tripled within last 17 or 18 years. So if you look at early 1990s, uh, trade to G which is exports 
and exports plus imports of goods and services as a proportion of total income was about 16%. Today, it's, it's, it's 49 or 50%. So it's a threefold increase. And remember that GDP is growing in the denominator rapidly also. So trade has to be growing at a super rapid pace for that kind of transformation to happen. So Indian economy today is far more open than, uh, I mean, very dramatically more open than it was uh, uh, 15 or, or 18 years ago. Uh, Direct or foreign investment in, in, in general, including both direct foreign investment and the portfolio investment, that was, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars in 1990. Uh, today, uh, the latest uh, year for which we have the figures, something like 25 to 30 billion dollars. Uh, remittances by the overseas Indians uh, going abroad uh, have expended from something like uh, two or three billion dollars in the early 1990s to about 28 to 30 billion dollars currently. Um, Outward integration is also now happening very rapidly, meaning, you know, through the acquisition by the Indian companies, uh, companies abroad. Uh, so, you know, these mergers and acquisitions, uh, uh, largely acquisitions by the Indian companies abroad in the last year were of the order of about $35 billion. Uh, and, the, you know, the, these big stories of Arcelor being, um, uh, being uh, taken over by Mithil, Chorus being taken over by Tata, uh, you got Jaguar, which was taken over by Tata also very recently. Large number of those stories, large, very large number of those stories. Uh, uh, then I, uh, my favorite kind of uh, a success story of the Indian economic reforms, which is uh, the telecommunications. Uh, this is by far, I, to me, by far the most, uh, most successful example of economic reforms. Uh, um, uh, to give you an idea, you know, again, uh, uh, if you go back prior to 1990, uh, the telecommunication system was in such a bad shape in India at the time that, you know, we used to joke again that, you know, if you want a telephone, you wait in the queue for about two or three years, you get the phone, and then uh, you pick, pick up the, 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 the phone, and, and there is no dial tone 50% of the times. The other 50% of the times you get the dial tone, you dial, but you get the wrong number. Um, and and, and that, that was the kind of quality of service. Um, and, and then on top of that, if you look at the quantity, in 1991, the total stock of telephones in India was about 5 million. That was the accomplishment of the previous 40 years. Um, today, currently, as a result of some of the key reforms that happened actually between 1999 and 2003, uh, India is adding as many as 8 million telephones per month. It's not per year, but 8 million per month. Uh, so every month it's more than what it was, uh, the total stock was, uh, in, in, for, in the 40 years, years of development ending in 1990. So that, that you know, and, and the, the telephone density, for instance, uh, uh, is now gone up, gone up. Even about 1998, the tel telephone density, which is, you know, number of telephones per 100 population, was something like three. It was a little below three. Today, it's, it's now about uh, uh, in the range of 28 to 30. So, so it really, you know, you've got about one in three. Uh, or, or at least you, know, you got telephones, uh, uh, for, for 30 telephones for every uh, 100 people, which is a phenomenal transformation. And I think this, this, this is one of the key reasons, I think, uh, uh, down the road, uh, the, the, the uh, scenario is, 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 is good and optimistic. Um, uh, uh, automobiles, again, is another sector where you know, there's one and a half million automobiles being uh, manufactured and put on the 
uh, road today. Uh, this is uh, uh, our total passenger vehicles. So, so again, that's another final statistic I like to mention is the uh, if you look at the uh, uh, the list of billionaires that was produced uh, by the Forbes, the latest one in November 2007. There were 54 billionaires on uh, on that list in India. There is more than in China or more than in Japan. So, India, you know, by the by the latest count, India has had more mil- billionaires than any other country in in in, in Asia, and that again. Uh, it, you know, tells you that wealth creation is, is is happening. It is a competitive market, and and so you know, it's not like uh, much of much of this billion these billionaires got there by transferring a lot of uh, income out of the hands of the uh, of the others. But but instead, you know, there's a huge amount of wealth creation that has gone uh, into creating these these billionaires. Uh, now, you know, once you make the point that yes, growth has happened, it's real. Uh, the the natural question that you know the the, the that comes within India, particularly where left tends to be quite strong, uh, is that uh, well, what has it done for the poor? So there is a big debate that has raised in India on on what has happened to poverty ratios, uh, and and now you know after a long long debate, uh, there is there is general agreement that poverty has come down quite significantly. You can argue about precise. De- degree or volume of reduction, but uh, but there is agreement that you know significant poverty reduction has happened. Official figures are that if you you know take the period from about mid 1980s to 2005, uh, the poverty ratio uh, went down from something like 46 percent to about 26, 27 percent. So. Very, very substantial. So then, of course, the, 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 as it naturally happens, the way these debates progress, uh, the, the, the issue has not turned on inequality that, oh, gosh, inequality has gone up, and, and this growth has not been all that good after all because uh, uh, so much inequality exists. Now, again, if you take the overall inequality as measured by the Gini coefficients, uh, that certainly doesn't uh, show a, 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 a significant increase, actually, you know, between mid-1980s to 2005. The movement is maybe 2%, 3%. So it's not, it's not a, you know, it's well within the uh, statistical error that goes with these numbers. Uh, but regional inequality and urban-rural inequality both have gone up uh, quite substantially, uh, I have a whole chapter on inequality in the book uh, and also on one on poverty. Um, I take the view that this is not something to be uh, uh, get hugely exercised about. There are lots of arguments. I'll give you just one. That, you know, if you're fighting poverty, what you would do is uh, focus on the states where large numbers of poor exist. This is Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Orissa, etc. That's where you should focus the effort. But, of course, if you really bring up the levels of the income levels of the poor in these countries, those folks who are still below the poverty line, you would actually also bring down the regional inequality. I mean, in, in, in effect, regional inequality is because lots of the poor are concentrated in some of these states, uh, and, and that's why you see this, this uh, regional inequality pattern. Uh, so in, in a way, to me, the fight against inequality is really tied into the fight against poverty, and, and, and so I would rather focus on poverty rather than uh, so much on inequality. And a whole host of other arguments I, I put forward uh, in, in, in Chapter 7 of the book, which, which I'll uh, not, not go into right now. Now, why, uh, uh, why do I see uh, the, the growth uh, and, and, and this continued reduction in poverty to be sustained? Uh, four or five kind of arguments I'd, I, I would like to make. You know, one is that the initial conditions in India now are completely changed. Uh, uh, the reforms that have happened, uh, and, and I'll allude to those in a 
at least very briefly in, 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 in a couple of minutes. Uh, the reforms that have happened actually have changed the initial conditions. India is far more open economy. I think telecommunication-wise, I, 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 the, the fact that you know every third person has a cell phone in hand uh, is an important factor. Uh, the, the, in general, the, the, the system is more open now. So, so that's, that's one factor. Uh, second, the savings rate and therefore the investment rate has actually gone up in India uh, within last five or six years, starting from about 2000 to 2007, eight now, uh, the, 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 the savings uh, to GDP ratio has gone up. So it's savings as a proportion of the GDP has gone up from something like 22, 23% to now about 33, 34%. That's an extremely high savings rate, actually. And so the investment currently as a proportion of the GDP is about 35, 36% in India. So, and, and at least if one looks at the 50-year history, uh, you hardly see any reversals in, in, in this. So, so one can expect, actually, that, that this investment ratio, high investment ratio, will sustain. Third, India is now a much uh, uh, younger country, and it is going to get younger uh, as we go forward. Uh, and, and what that means is, of course, that uh, the, the number of those working, the working population as a proportion of total population is larger and it's going to continue to grow larger. That, of course, means higher per capita income, uh, uh, even in an accounting sense. But also, that means that there is, uh, uh, that will add to savings rate further because if larger proportion of the population is working, which is also doing the savings, uh, you can expect the savings rate to actually only rise from here. Last factor I'd like to mention is, is that I think, you know, India's entrepreneurs are absolutely top class. Um, uh, uh, and, and, you know, if you look at how, what the policies were in the 50s, particularly the 60s and the 70s, uh, even in, in, in that kind of policy environment where uh, in, in every way the entrepreneurs had been restricted, they could actually produce a growth rate of about 3 to 4%. Uh, and, and so once, you know, and, and this is, you know, not, we, we had an attorney called Nani Palkiwala, he used to make this joke that, you and this was in the 1980s that, uh, um, boy, India's uh, entrepreneurs are really top class and it's really hard to suppress them. But by golly, our bureaucrats have got the talent. Uh, uh, but now that hand of the bureaucrat has been lifted off, uh, and, and, and I think that, that really means uh, gives, gives the entrepreneurs uh, freer play. And, and I think you know, that's, that's yet another reason I, I really think that this growth is going to be sustained. Now, it, it, it could get better, actually. So what, what, what the point being made here is that the 8 to 9 percent I expect to be sustained, um, uh, if, but nevertheless, there's so many inefficiencies still remaining in the Indian economy uh, that actually there is scope for pushing it to 11 or 12 percent, provided the reforms are done. Reforms, unfortunately, have slowed down. Reforms, unfortunately, have slowed down. Uh, you know, some of the big things that were keeping the entrepreneurs uh, uh, suppressed uh, have, have been undone. I mean, you know, if you look at the 60s and 70s, uh, there were so many restrictions, both on, uh, in, 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 from, from every angle, from trade side, policies were autarkic, mid-1970s, trade, I mean, imports to GDP ratio was something like 4%, 5%, you know, incredibly low compared to today, 25% or so. Um, uh, 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 on, on the investment side, larger investors were restricted to a very small group of industries, um, which were largely capital-intensive industries. So the government had drawn up a list of about 19 core industries, and larger entrepreneurs were restricted to those. Uh, and 
all labor intensive sectors were actually reserved for small scale industries uh, operators small scale uh, entrepreneurs no small scale was defined as $100,000 or, or less of investment uh, so that tells you you know the small was truly small and then large number you know apparel uh, textiles uh, 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 toys uh, uh, footwear you know anything that's labor intensive was actually on the small scale entrepreneurship list or small scale enterprises list and therefore uh, only the small guys could actually produce those so you can see what you know that that means they will never look to the export markets if you are going to be so small you will look only for the domestic market and and that's that you know so, so in a big way the industry had been scuttled uh, uh, there was a very interesting cartoon by by rk lakshman uh, in india's leading cartoonist uh, saying you know that he's this the minister of industry sitting talking to his staff saying that well you know i know uh, that it is our policy not to allow uh, big entrepreneurs but i say let's not allow small ones either because you know if we do then they'll one day get larger um, uh, and and so that that kind of you know caricatures but and, and nicely sums up the kind of restrictions that prevailed. Uh, all that I think you know finally in 1980 some reforms happened, some liberalisation started off there, uh, but 1990 uh, beginning 91, 92 big reforms happened. Uh, import licensing went out, and industry licensing went out, uh, and a lot of the macro reforms ha began to happen. Uh, the government actually in the early 1990s under Narsimhan Rao really uh, uh, brought about large number of changes. Well, two big changes on the licensing side, investment and import licensing, and then started the process of reform on many different fronts: financial markets, uh, the the airline industry, uh, the um, uh, uh, telecommunications. Also, it began. Uh, but that kind of then petered out. That, you know, the, so so uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, reforms slowed down because the governments basically were very fragile. Uh, within a period of about three years, you ended up with three different governments. Uh, finally, again, by 19, late 1990s, uh, Vajpayee uh, became prime minister. He got a five-year mandate, and that government uh, uh, survived for, for five years. Plus, there was one year that, that Vajpayee had done before that. So during that six-year period, actually, there were mega reforms. That was also the time this telecommunications, big telecommunications reform happened. But these, that government actually moved the process forward in virtually all directions, uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's documented in the book. Uh, now, under the current government, again, uh, unfortunately, you know, there was a turnover of the government in 2004, and, and, and uh, uh, the incoming government took the view that uh, the previous government actually lost because it did the big reforms, uh, which did not help the poor which was incorrect reading, but once you take the view that, gee, you know, all these reforms have left the poor uh, high and dry, uh, 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 bypass them, uh, then, of course, you know, that immediately uh, is going to, to dampen your enthusiasm for the reforms. And uh, sure enough, actually, uh, reforms have uh, come to a near stand still currently. Uh, there is a big kind of uh, need for, for revival, so one is hoping, you know, the next government that comes in. Uh, I, I'll take two more minutes to mention, you know, what I think currently India's big challenge is. Uh, uh, there are several kind of sub-challenges, but, but you know, in terms of transforming the country, the biggest challenge India faces is the following, that currently agriculture employs about you know, 55 to 60 percent of the workforce. Um, agriculture, on the other hand, generates income which is only about 15 percent of the total GDP. So you've got large number of this workforce, large, vast number of these workers employed in, uh, a profession, in a profession which generates very small amounts of income. And, and going forward, what one needs actually, you know, if India is going to transform itself uh, to a modern economy, to an urban modern economy, uh, large 
numbers of these workers have to be moved out of the agriculture into something else, whether non, all sorts of non-farm activities, but also in particular manufacturing. In India, manufacturing has been stagnating. I mean, I don't mean stagnating in the sense of, you know, its, it's, its output is not rising, but it's rising about at the same rate as the GDP is rising. So if you take 1992-2007-8 current period, the share of manufacturing in the GDP is pretty much static at 15%. That's very unlike countries like Korea, countries like Brazil, uh, countries like China most recently, or if you want to go back into the history, the US, UK, etc., you know, generally when growth happens, manufacturing grows very rapidly uh, and as agriculture shrinks. So in India, agriculture is shrinking, but manufacturing is not expanding very rapidly. And that, of course, means that you are you know, not keeping up the process of moving workers out of agriculture into alternative activities uh, where it needs to go. And that, I think, is India's big challenge. Uh, from the policy front, what that means is reforming the labor laws, uh, uh, fixing up the power sector, which is in bad shape, uh, um, and I think, you know, then, I mean, those are the two major reforms waiting to happen. Also, a proper exit policy, which is currently missing. Uh, if a firm closes in India, it takes, you know, easily 15 years to get through the uh, court proceedings, which, is, which, 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 which obviously discourages entry of the firms in the first place. Uh, so, so you need to fix that. There is other infrastructure, transportation, that I think uh, uh, will be fixed. Uh, there, uh, the developments that are underway make me feel generally optimistic. Road, uh, uh, air, and sea transportation will, I think, pick up fine. Uh, but, but power sector is extremely important. That needs to be fixed up. Uh, and uh, labor laws is, is the other sector which, which really needs uh, uh, very major, major sort of reforms. And, and uh, that's where my, my hopes are. Uh, we'll see uh, how the next government comes in and uh, takes up the charge. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Arvind. Our next speaker is Swaminathan Iyer, and we're very honored at the Cato Institute that he is a research fellow at a Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Swami uh, is a well-known uh, writer and advocate of liberal reforms in India, where he has a weekly column in the Times of India, and where he's been writing for a number of years. He, uh, beginning in the 70s, uh, was one of the lonely voices calling for liberalization in India when uh, uh, that was thought to be uh, sort of a crazy path to take, and now uh, he is, has much more company, thankfully. He has just uh, published a, a book called The Escape, Escape from the Benevolent Zookeepers in India, published by the Times of India, which is the best of swam, Swaminomics, which is what his column is, is known as in, in India. Uh, it's my honor to welcome Swami to the podium. Thanks. Well, Arvind has given, I think, a pretty excellent account of what has happened and some of the things that have gone right. So as a cynical journalist, I have to tell you many things that are going wrong. Uh, on the one hand, you know, as he says, we have been accelerating. In the last five years, we've done almost 9% growth. Now, the fact that such a chaotic and disorganized democracy can produce 9% growth should at least end once and for all, I think, the democracy versus growth debate that we've been hearing for the last 50 years. 
Uh, I mean, there were a lot of people who said, you know, you look at all these East Asian miracles, you know, those guys have done really well. You look at India, Sri Lanka, the democracies don't do particularly well. And there was supposed to be a Faustian bargain, which people were supposed to say, of, you know, let's go for autocracy for faster growth. I think what we can finally say, I mean, India was five and a half, six, what people used to say was that, you know, if you're a democracy, uh, because of all the checks and balances, you can never do as fast as the best autocracies, but maybe not as badly as the worst. So like India, you might do five, five and a half, six, but not much better. The fact that India has now gone to nine, I think shows that, you know, while democracy may have a series of disadvantages, it appears to have some solid institutional advantages. If India, with all its flaws, can do 9%, frankly, anybody should be able to. I, know, I need to drive home that point. Uh, we have a situation where, while India may look impressive from outside, within India, the entire political class that has presided over these reforms is regarded as a bunch of corrupt, opportunistic rascals. Uh, a former election commissioner made his estimate uh, in the mid-1990s that all the, ele of, uh, the elected legislators, 40 members of parliament had criminal records and 700 members of state legislatures had criminal records. Uh, some updating has taken place in, state, in a few states. The situation appears to be even worse today. The Manmohan Singh cabinet has seven members with criminal charges against them. Uh, one of them actually recently did get convicted for murder. It was an interesting murder. Uh, there was a bribe taken, and his secretary who knew about it demanded a share of the bribe for which he was murdered. Uh, perhaps I should be fair to him. Having been convicted in the lower court, he did go on appeal, and in the upper court, uh, it turned down the conviction. India is a country where, thanks to legal and delays and, I would say, some legal corruption, it is extremely difficult for anybody to be convicted beyond all appeals. I can think of no particular example where it's happened. So India turns out to be a country with a lot of crime, but no criminals. No, <laughs> uh, so, okay, okay, that's just one of the problems. Then again, Arvind has given this long list of reforms and so on that have happened. And yet, if you look at the Index of Economic Freedom, the Heritage Foundation or so on, India is only 104 on the list, way, way down. If you look at transparency, international in terms of corruption, India is 70, 75, that kind of position. Human Development Index, only 120. There's a World Bank series on doing business, uh, which Arvind has taken exception to, but still on that, India ranks only 120th out of 180 countries. So this is a country with a whole lot of problems, a whole lot of hurdles. Uh, Arvind said that Poverty has reduced, which has been reducing. And yet the absolute levels are staggering. If you go to the official uh, consumption data, the National Statistical Organization, apparently three quarters of the population is living on about 50 cents per capita at market prices. If you adjust for purchasing power, you may up it to one and a half, two dollars. So it remains an extremely poor country even though poverty has been going down. And there is now Marxist violence and incidents of Marxist insurrection in 157 out of India's 600 districts. Uh, many of these are just occasional uh, dis disruptions here and there. But still, this does not look like the kind of country uh, that should be doing 9% growth. 
So it's rather, you know, I think it would be correct to say India is a country with a huge number of problems, and if with all these problems you can do 9% growth, it really shows that, A, democracy by itself is not a barrier, and B, uh, you get various policies right. If you get enough policies right, then even if you have quite a few inane policies and quite a few social and other problems, you can nevertheless grow fast. Okay, where do we go from here? Uh, I think Arvind Panagadia is dead right in saying, on the one hand, we do need labor reforms uh, to promote labor-intensive manufacturing. We have comprehensively missed the bus on this. Uh, Korea, Taiwan, all these guys went, went forward with cheap manufacturing uh, and became miracle economies in the 60s and 70s. You know, Thailand, Indonesia, and so on followed later on. China has followed now. India has missed this particular bus almost entirely. There was a proposal recently that at least in the special economic zones, the special export zones, there will be labor flexibility. The government of India just said, no, we won't allow it even there. The populist pressure and the dependence of the government on the communists to survive is a very, very strong force, and these issues are not going to go away. Uh, so I'm, I also agree with Arvind that the, in order to reduce poverty, instead of having these large government programs which get used up in waste and corruption. I mean, Rajiv Gandhi, a former prime minister, himself estimated that of every 100 rupees that they put out in the anti-poverty programs, maybe only 15 actually get through to the poor. The other 85 just goes in waste and corruption. So the question is, what do you do? Arvind asserted in his book that we need direct transfers to the poor, vouchers for education, vouchers for health. I think that is an important way to go. What are, the le what are the main lessons we get? First, that India's growth potential is far higher than any of us had anticipated. We used to say, you know, if only we can get to the kind of 7% that Southeast Asia can get to. We've done 9, and individual states are doing 13 and 14. So I think one positive thing we've learned is that India's great growth potential is much higher than we had thought. Within that, I think we also the lesson we learn is that when you start a reform process, the immediate effects are actually extremely limited. Uh, you can get improvements here, improvements there, but as a reform process begins to create virtuous cycles, it takes time for each virtuous cycle to reach critical mass. Then when a whole lot of them reach critical mass, suddenly you can get explosive growth. I think this is one lesson we have learned. It means that in a large number of countries where you get onto a reform process and people say, hey, the results aren't coming too fast, and the answer is don't expect that economic reform is like instant coffee. It takes a little more time. Uh, Arvind has raised the issue of labor-intensive manufacturing to get people out of agriculture. Frankly, I'm a pessimist here. I think that the technology, technological progress of the world has gone such that I see in more and more things, all production is getting mechanized, all production is getting automated. There are very few labor-intensive areas still left. I mean, toys used to be a labor-intensive area. Now you just put in a glob of plastic at one, point, one end and out pops the toy at the other end, and there's no labor at all. Uh, the two areas which are still using a lot of labor are where soft materials are concerned. Uh, robots can't handle cloth for stitching. 
they can't handle leather for stitching uh, this has not been robotized and fortunately for us i suppose the, there is no interest in the usa in r&d to robotize this particular area and yet the day will come the day machines can handle soft materials millions of jobs are just going to disappear so i think we need to understand that while arvind thinks that we can move to these labor intensive jobs i have my doubts most technology i think has changed that situation quite radically so we do have to move people directly into services of various kinds uh, therefore what appears to be an indian anomaly that you know we are just not moving guys into manufacturing uh, our, he mentioned tata motors tata motors our biggest automobile company has more than doubled its production while having the workforce our biggest motorcycle company bajaj auto it has doubled its production having its workforce technological trends are not very conducive for labor intensive manufacturing india is succeeding in brain intensive manufacturing where r and d where styling design is concerned this is where we are succeeding so i think most of the new jobs would have to come in one way or the other in the services above all the question is how do you lift the rural areas india is still 70% rural it's this is not widely realized and the pace of urbanization over the last 50 years has been extremely slow how do you lift these people out i am very clear the ultimate effect of all these reforms was the urban india was connected with the rest of the globe and this globalization of urban india helped urban india take off if you can connect the whole of rural india as well to the rest of the globe i think rural india will take off for the, for that basic connectivity you must have telecom which is beginning to now get into all the rural areas uh, rural towers are coming up Uh, the rural roads are coming up and uh, there is a program for rural electrification i don't know how far that will go but once you get proper connectivity for the villages i have no doubt that half a million villages will turn into towns they will get connected they will get globalized and i think they will be able to grow the same way that urban india has managed to do so far uh, so much for the hopes let me just say that Ar- Ar- arvind pointed out that recently there has been some backtracking on the reforms uh, i would say it's even worse than that um, there has been a downright reversal we hope that some of this is just a temporary reaction to spiraling food and fuel prices but it's worth pointing out that india has banned exports of rice wheat pulses and has lost a big bonanza on rice exports uh, rice exports of 5 and 1/2 million tons last year this year maybe no more than 1 million tons because of all the restrictions uh, so on the one hand we are robbing ourselves of the opportunity to export rice at record prices on the other hand the import price for our neighbors like bangladesh and philippines have doubled Uh, india has in effect banned the export of cement to try and curb local prices and in fact has abolished the import duty and countervailing duty which means we are discriminating in favor of imports and discriminating against our domestic production of cement as a form of trying to bring down inflation uh, the price of oil has doubled in india with after great difficulty after one year they increased the price by about 10% and the prime minister went on national television to apologize for it um i mean i have many differences with bush but at least he doesn't do that here uh we have put a large export duty on steel to try and say steel must be kept within india let the prices come down there has been a huge loan waiver for apparent small farmers saying that you know this will get them out of debt and 
the natural reaction of that has been that a lot of other farm loans, everybody is willfully defaulting. They say, I mean, if the government can rescue uh, all the guys who defaulted, why should I be honest and repay my loans? So willful default on a massive scale is taking place in the rural areas because of this attempt to give this kind of relief to small farmers. The refusal to let oil and fertilizer prices rise in line with world prices, you're more or less frozen the prices of fertilizers now for years. It means that, in effect, your fiscal deficit, which was supposed to be 3% of GDP, is going to be at least twice as high and perhaps even more. And if the price of oil goes to $200, God knows what will happen to that. So we have a political system which has many strengths and many achievements, and yet many things going wrong. Uh, I am hopeful that this temporary surge in food and fuel, uh, that it will be temporary, uh, and we will overcome it. At the same time, it's worth pointing out that the fight for keeping up liberal values is not over. The fight for going in the right direction is not over. There are strong forces right now to go in the wrong direction, and we need to keep up the long-term perspective in mind. We need to keep up the long-term fight for freedom still. Thanks very much, uh, Swami. We have time for questions and answers, so if you have a question, please uh, raise your hand, wait for the microphone, and uh, when it comes to you, identify yourself and your affiliation. We'll take the first question right here in the aisle. Yes, Anthony Odie with Georgetown University. You both mentioned very briefly education. Could you expand a bit? I'm assuming there are enormous quality problems in, in mass education, what are the implications for raising productivity more broadly? What are the reform proposals you're putting forward? Thank you. You want to shall I? Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So uh, India doesn't have compulsory primary education still. Uh, uh, th th there was a constitutional amendment actually uh, introduced some years ago to make it a fundamental right, but it, in the end, hasn't been done. Um, but some progress finally has happened. So about 95% of the kids, uh, 14 years of age or below, are now in the schools. But as you correctly point out, there's a huge quality problem. A uh, vast number of kids, you know, who are in fifth grade cannot read at the first grade level. Likewise, you know, fifth grade kids cannot do grade two level of math. Uh, and that's a big issue. So one of the aspects of that is uh, that, uh, well, at least... The view I take here is, uh, unfortunately, I meaning if the government is capable, I have no trouble let the government do things. But in the Indian case, uh, uh, systematically, education, health, whatever else, the government has not been effective. It just is not capable of delivery. So I, I advocate ultimately that you know you have to move to a system where uh, everybody can gain access to private schools. Um, I think, I mean, the view I take is that. It's not as though the government is going to get out of the public, uh, out of the business of providing education and health, but it needs to feel the pressure of competition from something better. I mean, that has done wonders, for example, in banking sector currently, where private banks came in, and that has really put a lot of pressure on the public banks to shape up. And, and, and you can see the results actually happening even on the public. And, and similarly, I think, you know, so uh, that's, that's one argument I make that, look, you know, at least, I mean, a lot of the kids who, whose parents can afford to send their kids to private schools have already done so. I mean, in the urban areas, the, uh, the, the percentage of kids going to private schools is 
easily some, somewhere around 70% or so. It's quite large. I mean, India is probably in the world the highest uh, ratio of, uh, of the kids going to private schools. Uh, in rural areas, much less so. Uh, and, and, and therefore, the poor kids are the ones who are being shortchanged. So I argue that, look, you know, take the bottom 35% of the population, give them vouchers to go to private schools. Uh, I would agree with the solution. I don't see very – I mean, a few states are beginning to make a move in this direction. Four states have recently come forward with some kind of voucher program or the other. The problem is some of them are very – are the wrong solutions. If you say in the remotest area where there's no government school, I will give vouchers. I mean, it's stupid. You, you know, vouchers will typically work where there's a multiplicity of schools and you can choose. So, you know, in an urban area is the, is the right place for it to come up rather than a remote area where there's, no, where there's no government school. But there is a move in that direction. However, I'm very clear that for a long time to come, uh, the rural areas are, are not going to get into the stream. It's going to take... 10, 15, 20 years. No, no, you're wrong. Actually, in rural areas, about 15 to 17 percent kids have access today to private schools. And no. even very poor people, in spite of not having enough resources, are actually sending their kids no, to these you, private schools. You didn't allow me to finish. It'll take 10, 15, 20 years to get educational levels up to where you can say most people are getting a decent, good quality education. Meanwhile, what's it? I mean, you refer to the shortage of skills. If you're trying to grow at this pace, there is a huge scarcity of skills today in every single part of Indian industry, in every single part of services. Uh, in some sense, a, a rash of private institutional training institutions and uh, colleges of every kind are coming up. I mean, government colleges turn out, churn out 45,000 engineers a, a year. Private colleges have come up mushroomed all over the place, and they produce 400,000 engineers per year. I mean, that, that's, that's the kind of uh, thing. Now, as you say, there's a quality problem. People say rule of thumb, half of them are useless, a quarter are usable, and a quarter are world class. I mean, just to give a, a, a very rough breakdown. But these are the kinds of, uh, this is a huge spread effect. Individual companies say to create skills, I have to create a university. Infosys, the software, the leading software company, for instance, is setting up, in effect, an entire university of its own world class because the government can't do that particular job. The construction in industry, which is running out of skilled people, the construction people are going to now set up a series of skill training institutions to impart these skills. A number of the industrial training institutes, for because blue-collar labor is no longer unskilled. So what's really happening is that the private sector, in one way or the other, including industry and the service industries, are themselves having to become huge training institutions to lift the quality. Uh, this is how we are going to manage at the upper level, but for the... It, it is going to take a significant, significant amount of time for the quality of education to rise in the rural areas. Take a question in the back in the aisle. Uh, my name is Prashant Kothari. I'm sort of a shamateur economist and blogger, but professionally, actually, sorry. Yeah, could you speak up just a little? The sound is a little. Yes, uh, but professionally, actually, I'm an entrepreneur. And this sort of question about education feeds right into an observation I'd make. I've started three companies in India over the last eight years. And the thing is that one of the challenges I find is that if you're going to the 99th percentile Indian professional or student, that person is probably as good as somebody in America. But once you go beyond that, the gap starts to widen and dramatically. 
Even a 95th percentile Indian engineer or chartered accountant is probably only as good as an 80th percentile American equivalent. And once you get to 90th percentile Indian sort of uh, professionals, it's like it's such a huge challenge. You know, we've, I've, we've recruited about 1,000 people over the last eight years and had to screen tens of thousands of people to just to get to that. And to me, the, the, I guess the question is, we've only sort of employed so far right now about a million, two million people in the IT, BPO industry. And if you're already facing these challenges in terms of the quality of people, professionals, not uh, you know, people at the uh, labor force, how sort of can we sustain growth going forward? Yeah, um, I mean, so, so this is about the higher education. The previous question I interpreted as being for primary education, actually. Now, this is higher education. That is an area where the government has been asleep on the wheel forever. I mean, there has been zero reform in that area. Uh, successive HRD ministers have refused to actually do anything uh, coming even close to a reform. Now, to the point now today, for instance, India has no private universities. There are some that have entered, which is anomalous, but the process, uh, there, there is no no smooth process out there by which a private individual could actually start a university in India. Colleges you can, and, 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 and that tells you, you know, the, how much entrepreneurship, even in the education area, including both higher and, and the primary, elementary, et cetera, exists. You, you can judge that by how many of these. I mean, if you look at the expansion of uh, higher education at bachelor's level, both engineering, uh, management, and, and, and others, uh, even liberal arts, actually, at the college level, it's virtually all of it is concentrated in the private colleges. But the government will still not allow the private universities. I mean, I've been writing on this about for at least 10 years now, uh, uh, advocating that, look, you know, you've got to give entry to the private universities. Unfortunately, the system is very centrally controlled. There is a single body called the University Grants Commission, which I think we should get rid of completely, but that's the body that controls everything from curriculum to the salaries to whatever else you want to do. I mean, what is the comparative advantage of an institution sitting in New Delhi being trying to control the, a remote college in, in Chennai uh, as to what it's, it can teach and what it cannot teach? Uh, but sadly, I think you know, the prime minister, I actually even three years ago met prime minister, and that was one of the two things I urged him. And he said, oh, there is a knowledge commission that's going to give a big report, etc. Uh, and I wasn't sure you know, who was on that knowledge commission. Probably two, or two of its members couldn't even spell knowledge correctly. Um, uh, and, 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 and sadly, it has finally given a report which really doesn't even address any of the issues uh, which, which really need to be addressed. So I'm afraid on, on that front, uh, I, I'm not, you know, I mean, on engineering and on management, Perhaps you'll, be, you'll do okay because private sector has an entree. But in general, particularly liberal arts, uh, education is, is incredibly bad. The, 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 the good outcomes you see in the top 1% or 2% of the, uh, uh, of, of the population uh, is really no thanks to the institutions. Uh, it is that you know, out of a billion people you do produce. And India you know, generally had a very uh, strong tradition of intellectual activity, so you do produce some very, very bright kids. Uh, but uh, uh, that's, that's a credit to the kids, actually, rather than uh, the, the, the institutions. I mean, value added in the classroom uh, is, is uh, virtually zero, actually. So I'm afraid you know, on that front, I'm not particularly optimistic unless, you know, the government comes in next year, uh, the next one, and, and actually makes higher education a priority. 
No, I, I agree. I agree with Arvind that you know the on the university side, we really do need free entry of private universities and of foreign universities. They should be able to open up campuses. All demand is there. I mean, the Indian government is willing to spend eight billion dollars uh, to give money to Indian students to go abroad to a foreign university, but will not allow a foreign university to open a campus in India. I mean, that's as illogical a situation as possible, but it happens to be current policy. But as I said, industry itself is going to have to set up these training institutes. If I, if I now find a situation, I mean, there's somebody who says, you know, I can't find good guys. The answer is even the construction industry can't find bricklayers and carpenters. So, you know, let alone your, high, your highly skilled people, every single industry is going to have to set up its own institutes to get the guys up. It is not that the fellow at the 95th percentile and 90th percentile is fundamentally stupid in India. He hasn't had the training. You can't depend on the government to provide these guys. You will have to give them the additional in-house training yourself. That is going to be an additional cost, and you'll have to factor that in. Take another question in the corner. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kami Butt, and I am Pakistani American, and I write for a, a blog called The Pakistani Spectator. Uh, my question is, uh, sir, uh, to you, that how many years you think it would take India to come to the level of economic progress when Pakistani would like to sneak in, do some work, and then send that money back to Pakistan? That should give some sense of a shame to Pakistani generals. I'm so sorry. Uh, can you can you repeat the question? I Repeat your question. Okay, I'm asking you that how many years would it take India to get to the level of economic uh, progress when Pakistani labor would like to, like to sneak in India, in India to India and work there and send some money back to Pakistan for the purpose of shaming Pakistani general like Ziaul Haqqar Musharraf who've been ripping off their country with the blessing of American, depriving their poor people from education, from food and from infrastructure and putting that money in defense, but they never were able to beat Indians. So, and the, my question to you, sir, is do you really believe that Indian politicians are more incompetent and more corrupt than Pakistani generals? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, I, I, I'll take that your first question to me was a rhetorical one. So, uh, <laughs> I, um, I mean, you know, if you're talking, say, uh, how long for India to get to Korean income levels, I suppose, is, is one way to interpret it. Uh, there is a long road. I think, you know, we are talking at least a couple of decades. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a long time uh, for, during which Pakistani workers will have to slip into Dubai and, and uh, <laughs> a lot of the other America, where else, you know. So um, a long time before you want to slip into India. As for uh, whether Indian politicians are as good as bad, or I, I would say we are all roughly the same. We have a great culture that we have drawn upon with exactly the same weaknesses and exactly the same advantages. The difference is that in India, the institutional grounding of democracy has kept our rogues in check somewhat, and that has not been the case in Pakistan. I think that is the main difference. I'll take a question uh, here in front. Hi, um, Gopal Ratnam, reporter with Bloomberg News. One question for each of you. Um, Mr. Panagiriya, you mentioned uh, that the rural agricultural workforce needs to be transferred to the manufacturing sector. Obviously, that means 
if the manufacturing sector grows to that kind of an extent, then you're looking at a higher energy consumption. And I want to see if in your book or elsewhere you address the issue of what does that mean for the, the climate change and carbon emissions issues, which which comes up in every conversation uh, that I that I hear with people. And the question for uh, Mr. Ayer is, you, you mentioned uh, connecting the rural areas to the rest of the world, and that'll help the rural areas take off. But in the case of the cities in India, it seems as if the cities had something to offer to the rest of the world. So I'm wondering what would help the rural areas take off? What exactly is a skill or what is it that the rural areas have to offer to the rest of the world that will help them take off? Yeah, I mean, in the book, I really don't deal with the climate issue. Um, it is it is an important one. Um, and, and if India really does, the, the manufacturing, meaning that, you know, the, the, the scenario I have in mind is that wages in China are, are now rising, the real wages, and, and that is going to get China exiting. It's, you know, textiles already beginning to happen. Apparel also, it's probably going to begin to exit. And this is a good time for India, therefore, to get its house in order and, and, and take over those industries. I mean, I, I don't buy Swami's kind of this, that everything has become uh, capital or skilled labor intensive, and therefore there, are no, there is no unskilled labor intensive manufacturing left to be done. I mean, if you become the world's factory, uh, as, as China did and as China has been doing, I, I think, you know, quite substantial expansion of unskilled labor employment can be done. So now the climate issue uh, is, is an important one. Uh, it, 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 it's a complex one, so I don't want to go into too many details. But one thing that India could do, and this is where I, I certainly think that it's very important for the India-U.S. nuclear cooperation deal to actually go through, uh, a lot of the people take this 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 very skeptical view that you know maybe two or three percent of India's energy needs can be actually gotten from nuclear energy. I don't buy that. I mean, if the U.S., which has not built a nuclear plant in God knows how many years, still produces twenty percent of its energy from the nuclear sources, France can do seventy-five percent of its energy from nuclear sources. I don't see why India cannot actually at least get to fifteen twenty percent. Uh, I understand it's going to take time; gestation period is long, uh, but and so you know it'll be eight to ten years before the first plant comes uh, uh, on, on production. But, you know, that's where you have to start doing. So that's certainly one source as opposed to burning coal, which, which uh, uh, now there, there is all sorts of other issues as to, you know, how much of the burden India will have to share versus the rest of the world and, and, and so forth. But, but you know, I, I don't see a scenario in which India will not have to share any. Uh, I think India will have to, uh, uh, in the end, I mean, you know, there's whole sorts of issues of... Uh, uh, in, in terms of the past pollution, India is not the big, big contributor. The problem, I mean, in a sense, the Indian attitude, uh, which says, uh, oh, we did not create this problem, has some truth to it. But at the same time, I think when it comes to solution, India will have to make its contribution. So uh, one has to start searching for, for these alternative energy solutions uh, as well. And, and it seems to me also on, on the biofuels, et cetera, with you know, oil prices rising to $140 uh, uh, per barrel, there is scope now. And, and if Indian agriculture actually could be reconfigured somehow, I mean, currently, for instance, you know, 70 percent of India's land holdings are less than two and a half acres. This is very small land holdings. In Indian agriculture, if you look at the yields in various commodities, they are one of the lowest in the world, actually. China in, in 1990s has really zoomed up in a large number of the commodities. Now, if you could really raise the yields dramatically through proper reorganization of agriculture, you could free up a lot of the land for biofuels. So, I mean, those are the creative areas in which one has to start thinking. 
uh, as far as you said, the cities, Indian cities had something to offer. What do the villages have to offer? It was not evident 20 years ago that the Indian cities had anything to offer either because they were not, until you are connected, you don't know what the universe of possibilities is. I mean, earlier on, you had a system where the road transport was mainly state road transport corporations. The railways were a public sector monopoly. The ports took forever. Uh, there was a particular World Bank report which said if you want to unload port at a cargo, the, first of all, you pay the dock labor to go away. Then you illegally bring in your own private labor to unload, and that is the fast. So, I mean, when you had this lack of connectivity, you didn't take off. It wasn't obvious what advantages that you had. Then we got this brilliant thing called, you know, selling software over the airwaves. There was no railways. There was no roads. There was no ports. The connectivity took place instantly, and suddenly a thousand uses came up, which nobody had realized. You provide the same connectivity. Now, you need connectivity not for a village, not just for connecting to New York, you need it just for connecting to the neighboring village, for connecting to the state capital, the district capital. Let more than that. Uh, when I go to America, I find that there's, I went. I went to play somewhere in the Rockies, a city of Monticello. It said population 800. It had an airport. In India, we have places with 10,000 people, and we call them villages. So India is another way of putting it. Is that India is full of cities without infrastructure, which we mistakenly call villages. So for heaven's sake, I mean, provide this connectivity and I believe they will take off like the places that already have the infrastructure. Take a question in the back on the left. Hi, my name is Michael Rubenstein and I'm uh, with the International Food Policy Research Institute. I think that one of the biggest challenges that India faces is its very high rates of child undernutrition. Um, about half of Indians, uh, Indian children are malnourished, and this compares unfavorably to most of even sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and uh, unfortunately, in a lot of discussions that, um, that I hear about wh what India needs to do, this issue isn't even raised. Um, so it seems clear that this um, that this generation of wealth and, and new billionaires is, is not uh, an economic growth, is not really tackling this issue. Um, so I'd be interested in, in, uh, in what your book has to say. It, it, it's, it's an important issue in particular now, not just in terms of the human cost of undernutrition, but also with the new research coming out that shows uh, links between improved nutrition um, in early life and increased productivity um, in the long run. Yeah. I mean, there is recognition of the problem. With, with, on, on that, I disagree. There are a lot of members of parliament I've talked to, and there is a parliamentary, actually, committee which uh, is, is looking at, at, at the low nutrition issue. Uh, question is their action. Uh, and, and that's where we have the real problem. It seems to me that, you know, a simple thing that could be do done, which, you know, in the U.S. you arrive that first day and you, you, you see that, yeah, this is an obvious thing to do. Fortify the foods with uh, uh, vitamins and whatever nutrients that, that you need. In India, there is no such uh, uh, process. There is no such system in place. Um, now, uh, all, I mean, the, 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 the food laws as they have existed in the past uh, have been incredibly archaic, contradictory and so forth. The present government, finally, at least in that one area, they did bring in a new legislation, food security legislation. Um, 
But again, you know, they, they were supposed to have appointed an independent authority uh, to 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 proceed with, with the implementation and all. I think it's still stuck for a long time. You know, the, 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 there was a fight between the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Food, whether who is going to be the one that is going to set up this food authority. Uh, that I think got resolved, but but still, nothing very much has happened. So I'm afraid, you know, uh, that, that that is a problem. It is recognized, but not. Uh, 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 producing a whole lot of action, at least not not presently. Actually, there's a terrific calorie puzzle in India. Uh, incomes have been rising, and yet since the first survey of 1972-73, every single NSSO survey, calorie consumption per capita has been falling. So we have this peculiar country where incomes rise and calories go down. Uh, there is a further question asked in these every, these big five-year surveys of are you hungry? Do you get enough to eat? The percentage used to be about 15%, uh, 18% back in 83. The latest is down to 1.5%. So we have this peculiar thing that people are eating less and less, and yet apparently hunger is almost disappearing. Now, you know, I don't know how to resolve this issue. What I do know is this. If only 1.5% of people say that we don't get enough to eat, it's very difficult to persuade them to give more food to their children. I mean, I don't know how to overcome this. There, there is a family issue. There is a sense in which what the nutritionists say you must have is different from what the belly is telling Indians. Uh, partly, I think the nutritional standards may be overblown. Partly, perhaps, the data don't pick everything up. I really am not sure. This remains a problem. I will merely say that you can have a members of parliament committee and you can have various other things. If one, only one and a half percent of the people say we don't get enough to eat, I find it difficult to believe that people are going to feed very much more to their children. I don't know how to overcome that. Right here in the front. Uh, Ernie Prieg, Manufacturers Alliance. Uh, uh, clearly, the reform process has slowed way down, and a number of examples were given. Uh, but some things have happened, and, and often it's more for political reasons by a process of stealth, as it's been called, rather than public pronouncement. And one important one I'd like to ask your uh, assessment of is this uh, January night, 06, the adoption of a greatly liberalized law for uh, special economic zones, export-oriented. A very low-key, very little press play. Six months later, 400 applications, 200 approvals. Then belatedly, the opposition came forward, some, some violence even, some changes in the law. But the momentum seems to be there. And the facts I have is that last year, 07, already 40 of them are in production for, with $10 billion of exports, projection of $25 billion exports from SEZs this year. So uh, to what extent are, are some of these things going forward with a little less fanfare? And in particular, how important is this uh, greatly liberalized SEZ law? Yeah. Um, in, in a way, again, here, if you look at the SEZ law, the, the original draft of it by the previous government was a lot more liberal, actually. Uh, more would have happened. And in, in, in particular, uh, that, that original draft bill uh, would have uh, fixed up the labor issue. Uh, and, and the present government, when it came in, it reversed that, that particular provision, so the labor issue is still... It, it, it's, there's some progress on it, 
in, in the existing act, uh, but but not not as much as could have been achieved. Now on the you know, when you special economic zones, when they come in the news, news they come in when you have all these uh, folks fighting on over the land and so forth. But in a large, as you correctly point out, in a large number of areas, actually, quietly special economic zones are beginning to flourish now. Gujarat, in particular, is one state where several of these have come up. No, no participation by this government, state government at all privately negotiated arrangements in terms of purchase of land and then uh, progressing with it. So, uh, so yes, I think, you know, progress is happening. Now, there is a whole set of issues around special economic zones that look, you know, if these are good policies, why don't we want to have them over the entire country? I mean, why? And, and, and then there are all kinds of issues also with the tax breaks that you give, you know, uh, I mean, if you're going to tax, in the, I, I believe in horizontal equity and taxation, and uh, uh, why give a special treatment to those who locate themselves in a particular place, so I, I mean, it should be available locating for everywhere. So, but, but anyway, I think, you know, if that is the second best we can do, uh, uh, that's 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 it. That's one way to go about it. Hopefully, you know, you could follow the Chinese model, whereby they actually initially did in these special economic zones and then extended it, the entire the policy to the entire country. So maybe eventually we'll do that. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, there's some progress on that front. But you know, when we get exercised uh, uh, about why the government is not doing it, it's because what a, what little bit has been done done is well below what was expected. I mean, even after the government has said that, you know, there are certain things we are not going to do it in 2004 when it came to power, there's still a lot of the things that they said they will do, but they didn't. Uh, I, I would not be taken in by some of these figures that are beginning out. What's really happening is that these are like tax havens. There was a tax break that, you know, the software industry was not paying any tax until 2009. This is almost designed to say, okay, your tax break is expiring. All your expansion will now be in the SEZ. So it's more a tax haven than an additionality in a large number of... There will be some additionality also, no doubt about it. But to a large extent, uh, you are... I mean, in China, the SEZs, the important thing was they said, we will create enclaves of world-class infrastructure. Now, that is, I'm afraid, not what we are doing in India. Uh, uh, a software company can just... A small little plot outside Bangalore will say, this is an SEZ. I mean, far from creating infrastructure, it is probably creating more congestion on the roads and using up the limited power supply of Bangalore rather than creating additional infrastructure. So, you know, uh, this is we have not followed a very good policy. What we should have done was to create a series of uh, five or six places like Shenzhen and so on, which would be world-class infrastructure things. Regrettably, only two or three of the ones that are coming up, I think, would conform to that. A whole lot of others are small little tax havens coming up all over the place. I would not put them in the same, uh, same class as Shenzhen. We have time for one more question, and we'll take it right here uh, in the front. Thank you. My name is May Ng. I'm from George Washington University's investment office. Um, Arvind, you have a quite favorable outlook on India's ability to sustain its current rates of economic growth in the next five to ten years. And Swami, you mentioned that one of the um, challenges, uh, uh, current challenges um, in the short term is 
the rise in uh, global energy and commodity prices. Um, I, my question is, um, what if the uh, rise in energy, particularly oil prices, is not a short-term trend but a long-term secular development? What would be the impact on um, India's growth and also on the government's ability to implement pro-growth policies um, such as creating a favorable credit environment, um, funding improvements in infrastructure and education, etc.? Yeah, I mean, again, um, the, the question goes a little bit further that what impact the the increased oil price is going to have on the rest of the world's economy, right? I mean, if U.S. slows down and European Union slows down, Japan is going to slow it in the first place, what what will that also have on, on, on the Indian economy? What impact will that have on the Indian economy? My own guess, I mean... Is, is that that will probably show off one, one and a half percentage points of growth uh, off of it. Still, if you are from nine, you go to seven and a half. But if then India plays its cards right and does a lot of the things that are on, you know, on, on the reform agenda, uh, you could certainly neutralize that and, and, and still continue to eight to nine percent. But certainly, you know, seven and a half percent, I expect uh, to, to, to be registered in, in the forthcoming years. I think I'd roughly agree with Arvid that, you know, 1, one to 2 percent may get shaved off both because of the impact on India itself and the indirect impact through the world economy. But there's a larger thing of what happens if this continues for some time. I mean, if you look at the kind of global projections of what's, I mean, you look at Goldman Sachs's BRIC projections of what happens when India's GDP rises 30 times. If you say that the elasticity of energy is 50%, it means India's oil consumption goes up 15 times. There isn't that much oil in the world. So, you know, something is going to give uh, on the global energy scene, but it's not going to be done by India alone. India, China, Vietnam, everybody, the current rates of uh, GNP growth do not seem to me consistent with the kind of story I see on the oil front as to what the supplies are going to be. Uh, what the outcomes are going to be, don't ask me. Uh, maybe, as Arvind thinks, everybody will go nuclear. Some people think there will just be a slowdown. We will never have these growth rates. Others think that wind, solar will come up. I am not sure. What I'm dead sure about is there is not enough oil. There will have to be other sources. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. I want to thank all of you for joining us, and I'd like to ask you to uh, join me in thanking our speakers today. Thank you.